Hello and welcome to the Military Archives podcast. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the Military Archives Oral History Project. Okay, thanks for tuning in or streaming us wherever way you're listening to us. I'm Commandant Daniel Iotis, the officer in charge of the Military Archives. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be taking a look at the Military Archives Oral History Project, which began in 2015. It's now 2021, so we're going to have a look at a bit about where it came from, where it is now, and where it's going in the future. I'm joined by Noel Grotier, who is a, an archivist here at the Military Archives and the um, Oral History Project Manager. And Michael Whelan, Corporal Michael Whelan of the Air Corps, who is our lead interviewer. And you've done how many so far, Michael? 308 or 7, 307 so far. 307 interviews so far. Um, so, Noel, start off, would you tell us a little bit about the Oral History Project and where it came from? But the Oral History Project in its current format started in 2015, but its origins go back much further to the Bureau of Military History Collection. So the Bureau was set up in 1947, and the aim at the time was to capture witness statements and contemporary documents, material from veterans of the East Rising and the War of Independence. And most of the witness statements are in the form of typed up, signed statements that were put together, um, you know, t- time put into them and, and considered and corrected and, and then finalised. But they also, uh, there was a decision made to try and record some of the veterans who were involved. So there's a dozen recordings with uh, people, they, they try to look at kind of prominent figures from the time. So you get people like uh, Maud Gunn McBride or um, Kathleen Clark, the widow of, of Tom Clark. Um, you get a lot of people like that who mostly they were reading kind of prepared scripts. You had an idea, mm-hmm. of, you know, they, they, they had an idea of what they were going to say. Um, but they were recorded, uh, they worked with the Irish Folklore Commission at the time and they were recorded and stored. You can listen to them now on our website on the Bureau of Military History pages. And that's kind of the, the starting point of, of this idea of it's also important to capture uh, voice and, and emotion and stuff that you don't necessarily get in uh, written statements. Um, so that's that's the, the very start of it. Uh, the archives in you know in, in the nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties, there was kind of an ad hoc project here where as time and resources allowed, the officer in charge and staff would try and record interviews with prominent veterans. Um, there's a lot of cassettes that we need to to get digitized and, and to go back over um, f- from that time as well. Um, I started working here in, in 2008 and the advertisement in the, in the paper, it was in the Irish Times in late 2007, they were looking to recruit uh, a project manager and six archivists and there was a list of kind of jobs uh, and, and skills and, and kind of expectations for what we were going to do. And one of the things that was included on it back in 2007 was uh, an oral history project. At the time, I think the idea was, was to try and capture interviews with Congo vets. Um, now there was a lot going on at the time, we were also starting a lot of big projects, so it took a few years to get off the, the ground, um, but this isn't something that we just kind of woke up in 2015 and said, oh let's do this, it, it's something that, mm. that goes back to to kind of uh, late 40s, early 50s, um, and obviously as time goes on, our ability to capture uh, interviews, um, it, it's just it's much easier now to, to sit down and press record. That, you know, trying to pick up a wax cylinder and, and record a sound onto it. It's, yeah, it's, very it's, much. Technology mm. has, has has advanced so much that it's it, it's it, it's a question now. What why wouldn't you do it? I mean, this is you listen to hearing some of the clips later on today. Um, the emotion of people's voices. Um, you know, even the breaths and the pauses they're taking, things that way. Like it, it, 
it gives you a further insight that you mightn't necessarily get from a written report. So that's how it got started. Yeah. And very, you mentioned the kind of the thing of continuity back to the Bureau of Military History. I know from my own bit of research into the archives, even the Bureau is, is a continuation of earlier efforts from, I think, was it 1932? Uh, Evie O'Carroll, who was in as Director of Intelligence, established a thing called the Anglo-Irish Civil War Project, where they wanted to, to capture the, the written testimonies of... of there was primarily officers who had pre-true service and were serving in the army at the time or had retired, but it was very kind of specific and narrow in its parameters. But there always was, well, I think at least even since when Fianna Fáil came to power in thirty two, there seemed to be very much an appetite to start capturing and recording the testimony of the Republican revolutionary generation. Um, so kind of the records go back, you know, as far as that, and you see a continuity with that and, and it kind of build and build and it, it didn't meet much success until the Bureau was set up and it was that kind of formal structure that the Bureau had, I think, that gave it its strength. And I think we should talk about that. We listened to a few clips first, but we'll come back then to the, it, it, giving it a formal structure kind of really gives it an ability to operate and expand and, and, and to work properly. And as you mentioned, like during the 80s and 90s, there were ad hoc collections of oral histories, but it was in 2015 when uh, Commander Pori Kennedy, the previous officer in charge, established the the project formally and we got formal training and it was established with a methodology that it got the strength that it has now and that's the reason why it's so successful. Um, but in, in terms of, of, of continuity, we have two clips here and they really, one is from the Bureau and one is from the Military Archives Oral History Project and I think in terms of thematic continuity, they, they demonstrate a similarity. Would you, would you like to explain the two of those to us, Noel? Yeah, so the first clip you're going to hear is uh, from Maud Gone McBride, uh, Madam McBride. She was recorded in uh, 1950 by the Irish Folklore Commission for the Bureau of Military History. And in it, she's talking about uh, her role in, in the founding of Inini Nahirin in 1900. And uh, the second clip that we'll hear after that comes from a retired uh, Captain um, uh, Colette Harrison. Captain Colette Harrison. So she was interviewed relatively recently. Uh, she was a member of the first uh, female uh, cadet class in the Defence Forces. So uh, there's continuity in terms of the project, but also if you listen to the two clips, there's continuity in, in this theme of kind of uh, women in the Defence Forces. It's, it, they're two interesting clips. Uh, we'll take a listen to now. I think actually, just on a kind of a side note, it's kind of ironic and, and funny. Um, when you listen to Maud Gaw McBride and then afterwards Claire Harrison mentions that they go to England for, for training, you know, there's kind of a, a humorous irony there. Michael, did you conduct that interview with? Um, Maud Gaw, yeah. No, <laughs> <laughs> with Claire Harrison. <laughs> Both maybe, yeah. Well, let's have a listen to them. So we'll start off with uh, Maud Gaw McBride. The Celtic Literary Society founded by Willie Rooney, of which Arthur Griffiths is a secretary, like all political organizations of those days, excluded women from membership. But they invited me to lecture for them. So I used the opportunity of asking if they really thought Mother Ireland strong enough to go into battle with one arm tied behind her back, which was what this exclusion of women from political life meant and suggested that they should invite their sisters and sweethearts to meet me in their room in Abbey Street, and we would form a woman's organization for national independence. A few days after, I met some 14 sisters and sweethearts 
all young, inexperienced in political work, but all loving Ireland and eager to work for her. What can we do? To which I replied, whatever you like, as I do. We all want to counter whatever the enemy is trying to do. England is preventing our language and our history being taught in the schools. We could start free classes to teach the children subjects forbidden in the schools. England is trying to get Irishmen to enlist in her army. We could start an anti-recruiting campaign. The girls agreed. Before a year was out, we had three centres in Dublin, teaching history, Irish, music and dancing. That was how Inigny and Aherton started. It's, it's interesting and amazing to listen back to that clip. First of all, to hear the, the accent and the, the speech patterns as they were at the time, and that's something uh, Dr. Tomás McConra is very interested in. He, he um, put together the training for the, the oral history project, and we'll talk about him in a bit. But um, also as well, I think there's a small bit of, of distortion in the background, but for a 70-year-old recording, it was actually quite mm -hmm. good quality, and we're lucky that the Bureau had the foresight to, to record that. And what, so what, what, what other recordings are... Um, in the Bureau collection, Noel, who else is in it, can you remember? There's a, a dozen in, uh, dozen people interviewed in it, so uh, most of them are, as I said, people that were considered to be kind of prominent in the movement. Um, so you get McGon McBride, uh, there's uh, Mrs., uh, Mrs Tom Clark and uh, Mrs Amy Kant, so they're interviewed as uh, widows of, of the 1916 uh, signatories. Then you also get guys like uh, Sean McGon, um, uh, I actually can't think of any no. of the names off the top of my head. But well, they're on the website was, if anybody wants to go yeah, on. Yeah, so kind of where you, you get it, you get it, yeah. you know, kind of a, it, it was, I mean, it's really only a random sample of kind of high profile mm. people. Most of the clips, uh, I think Morgan McBride's is the longest at about 12 minutes. Most of them are just three or four minutes. It's, it's, it's nearly kind of something that we do because we can, but it's not, uh, you know, the technology yeah. involved, the storage and everything that way. It's, um, it's a lot easier today to do long interviews. Than it would have been at the time. Well, let's have a listen to Captain Colette Harrison's clip now, which was recorded in. When was this recorded? It was. It was. recorded in the summer this year. I can't remember exactly. This year, yeah. but she uh, speaks about joining the first female cadet class in who trained nineteen eighty 1980 to nineteen eighty one. Um, did the interview, had the medical, um, and really that was it. Just got the offer, okay. and having got the offer, you accepted it and. That was it. Okay. Handed your notice in a school, much to people sort of, you're going where? You're doing what? Um, and headed off to the Curra. My mother still remembers the day they left me to the Curra because she thought it was the bleakest place she ever saw in her life. She thought, Lord, where am I leaving her to? Because the place, you know, the Curra, long grey, or not long red brick buildings, cold wind blowing up it, as always. So, um, and that really was the start of it, to be fair. Okay. When they recruited cadets, it was leaving search with the main focus. Mm -hmm. But in making a decision, which is subsequently yeah. discovered afterwards to recruit women to the army, and initially the, the commencement yeah. of what was to be a women's service corps, remember? Mm -hmm. So it initially started as a women's service corps. That was the initial thinking, which was common 
in many other services, um, that it would be a separate core. They decided to look for people who were a little bit more inverted commas, I suppose, mature, a bit older, yeah. and that we were required to have a degree. So one of the qualifications was that you actually had to have a degree. Okay. So did you, by that stage, come in your first day to the career, mm -hmm. uh, realise what you were getting yourself into? Uh, not really. I, I think I had the bones of it in that there would be short period of training induction, if you like, in the Curra, and then that we would be going to the UK, okay. over to the Women's Service Corps in the UK, um, in Guildford and Surrey. So, so I was clear that we would be going away for the better part of the year. And again, so that's the, the, the continuity that we were, were talking about, um, both, uh, I suppose, methodologically and, and kind of broader continuity, but also thematically between the Bureau and the Military Archives Oral History Project as it is now. So, Michael, you've been, you were in the, you were involved with the Oral History Project from the beginning, but even before that, you were agitating and advocating for an Oral History Project to be set up, weren't you? I was, yeah. So, um, I went, to, when I came home in Costco in 2000, I started a degree in Minute, and I ended up getting a master there eventually, but during in that history. period, in history, yeah, modern history, so during that period, I was uh, trying to concentrate on the military team throughout on my research, and uh, I would have met a lot of veterans throughout my whole life and I loved hearing stories, you know, but I often felt that this was something that was very lacking as a narrative in the Irish historical story, especially around the military. Mm. So um, I wrote to the Chief of Staff at one stage, which was Dermot Early, uh, and then I had a friend who was an ex-Sandhurst Military Academy uh, civilian lecturer who was then working in the Kriegs School and the War School in Norway where he was teaching cadets and he was very interested in the Irish military history especially with overseas service as an oral history programme. And I was always asking me, have you got anything? And I was going, no, you know, we don't. So that's when I started, as you say, agitating to get this done. So um, I was writing to the Chief of Staff and other people, uh, wrote articles in the Uncostantor, I got that chapter right to the Chief of Staff, and I think he wrote an article in the Uncostantor too. And then in 2015, around uh, Commandant um, Parry Kennedy, yeah, at the time, Parry, who was yeah. officer in charge of the military mm -hmm. archives, I'd been chatting to him about it too, and to Noel, and, um, they decided to have to run this kind of a two-day course type of seminar in the Curra and I, I went on to that but in the meantime we'd been interviewing uh, some some veterans on, a, on an old tape deck with a microphone that was stuck in front of their face they're now in the collection you know pretty bad uh, copies of them like you know because they're old yeah. tapes with the spool noise and that you know but that's how it started off for me and this is where we are now which is brilliant and you were involved with the initial training which took place in in 2015 in the Curra I think yeah, that's where the, yeah. you had a two-day, uh, I think it was a two-day Noel course. And so uh, Tomás McCormery, who ran the course yeah. with Parik Kennedy, it was amazing. And there was so many people from around the barracks that came uh, in the hope that they would get involved and get this thing going and do the interviews. But um, it's been a few years now, so I don't know yeah. how many people got involved in the end. Well, I suppose um, because it's, it's done very much on a volunteer basis, mm -hmm. I mean, we've had, I suppose, a core of people who offer their services and have gotten the training and the equipment, but I think the, as a combination of, 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 of interest and ability, you've really taken the, the lead in terms of recordings. As I said at the start, you've done well over 300 at this stage. Yeah. Um, well, that's the thing. Yeah. I think the Art Issue Programme is very important, you know, and I, I have to thank various commanders of mine over the Air Corps, my own CEOs over the last few years, yourself and the Military Air Corps for for doing this and getting involved in this project is really important, you know. And as I said before, the interview sort uh, the, the Defence Force is a living organisation. It's an organism and it has oh, blood, it sweat, tears, heart and soul and muscle. And 
all that is built on the experience of individuals. So it's the individual experience that comes out. And as Noel said, you've a, you've a typed narrative of an event yeah. that happened. But when you hear the people talking to who are there and lived that experience and it's still part of their makeup, it's tremendously, you know, it really brings those things to, to life. And when I'm recording, it's not for people, it's not for my contemporaries. I'm thinking of their great, great chat grandchildren who will never meet them. Yeah. You know, yeah. who will hear them talking. We, I don't have that about my grandparents who served in the emergency here or in World War One, you know. But we're handing something on to the future, which is why this is important. And, and that, that is important. I mean, I know, for, again, from my own research, military museums have always been an issue in our organisation because even until this day, no military museum has an official establishment. Um, the military archives itself operated for a long time on an ad hoc basis. It was completely disbanded between 1959 and 1982 when Commodore Peter Young had it, um, kind of re- had it re-established. Um, and you mentioned again oral history in, in, in other armies as well. Where do we stand in terms of, of what other armies or other, other major armies might do in terms of collecting oral history and historians and their museums? Probably not great. No, no well, not, not really great, but if you compare... The military archives are doing a great job, but they're, they're, they're thinly spread, as you know, so you're trying to capture everything from everywhere now all the time. But the Americans, they've just come through 20 years of a conflict, and yeah. the British, they have people embedded, historians are embedded in those conflicts to go out to truth, to spend time there, to photograph and record and interviewing the people. When they came home from overseas, they're being interviewed. So it's collecting it as it happens. It's current affairs, almost. Yeah. But that, the next day, it's history, you know? And they have these things going on since the 50s, World War II, you know, they had journalists and historians going out there and capturing all this. So we're very badly uh, lagging behind on that. And I know we probably can't afford to do those things, but we have a seed now, which is yeah. very important. And hopefully we can expand on it. You know? Yeah, but I mean, when I think about that as well, I mean, there is, I suppose, there's pros and cons to having, quote unquote, an official historian or an official oral historian or official journalists mm-hmm. out embedded with troops as well. I think one of the benefits that we have with the Military Archives Oral History Project is that while we are a part of the military establishment, we have a lot of freedom and a lot of leeway. And I think we've built up a lot of trust as well that this is a project. It's not just where people come along to give their kind of, you know, their positive PR story that we script them. People can come in and they can... For a lot of people, I know from from talking to you, it's been cathartic for people. They've got to put, um, put down a table, put down digitally things that they haven't been able to express, that haven't been recorded in the, um, in the quote, I suppose, official record and the official documents as yeah. well. Um, well. Well, that's true. Yeah. And just to go back there, the Defence Forces, I think, should maybe look at having a school officially where you have people yeah. capturing it, recording it, and writing about it like you would have in America and England. But as mm. what you were saying there about these people having this cathartic experience, uh, Noel listens to the interviews as soon as I hand them into her, so she yeah. knows this. Does people come in and they're a little bit afraid but by yeah. the time the interview is over, they've changed somehow. Mm-hmm. They get emotional. And you know, I'm a bit worried about them going, maybe they're being affected. That's the first time I've spoken at length about my life. Because mm-hmm. they've just spent an hour and a half, two years, two hours listening to themselves talking. And it's like they're letting something go. Yeah. They're releasing yeah. it. You know? And that's all they wanted to do. I wouldn't be able to write a book, but I want someone to hear my story. Because they go to the canteen and talk to the lads and the girls in yeah. the canteen telling them a story. It's all blooming war stories. This is a different experience. And, and some of the material that is recorded, it, it can't because, well, firstly, because we need to listen to it and process it mm. and put together the time code and abstracts um, to make, the, to make the, the audio navigable and usable. 
But um, also, sometimes it's material that the individual doesn't want released yet. And sometimes we do get asked um, on Twitter, on a different social media accounts, and even in, in, in lectures, oh, when will all this stuff be available? I mean, the idea is we can't just record it and put it out there because this isn't just, these aren't just press interviews. This isn't just entertainment. There is sensitive material here, and, and people sometimes do want to say, well, listen, these were my experiences. They were sometimes negative experiences, but... I want confidentiality for the next 10 years or five years or until I'm deceased. Um, so can you explain, Noel, a little bit about the methodology behind an interview? So when somebody comes in, they're explained what it's about um, when they sign their consent form, um, how we put together the time code that abstracts, whether we release stuff or whether people request for it to be closed for a period. Yeah, so um, what happens is we have kind of formal paperwork that, that uh, Dr. McCumber uh, helped us to put together as well. So there's a, cons a consent. You get you get consent in the interview as well, but there's a written consent where people kind of sign to say, we understand that I'm doing this interview. It could be used for things like this podcast or for future history or for, for whatever use it's put to. Yeah. Um, so the person who does the interview also does... Uh, report immediately after the interview to kind of write down what were the highlights, what what were the bits that kind of stuck out from this interview for me, and to take note of you know is there something that I should return to this person about. Sometimes you, you don't get a full story in one interview, so you might make a note that actually this person has a great story. I want to go back and and, and get the, the next part or whatever. Um, then there there is a kind of a, a kind of a catalogue, an introductory kind of catalogue that the interviewer will do. Where they'll put rough time stamps on it and say, well, in this part we're talking about overseas service, and next part we're going to, we'll be talking about um, you know, joining the defence forces or, or whatever yeah. the subject of the interview is going to be. Uh, at that point, the interviewer brings the interview into archives here. Uh, we will take a look. Um, part of the difficulty is, I mean, this this is the, probably about a quarter of my um, kind of workload of responsibilities. So there's an issue in that we don't have the, the time or resources to get to interviews immediately. Um, but when we do get to them, uh, then I will take the the kind of initial catalogue done by the interviewer. I'll use that as a, a basis for for the timings. Uh, I'll listen back to it. Um, there's a lot of material that you need to, to be uh, kind of aware of. I don't know if it's a military thing in general, or does it happen in, in other people's interviews as well. But the introductory part of the interview, a lot of people are asked, you know, um, you know, name and year of birth, so you can you can kind of place them in in time or history. Yeah. You know, they're twenty as this happens. But I, maybe it's a military thing, kind of people reel off their name and their rank and their date of birth. And we're never going to give out someone's date of birth. That, I mean, that's data protection. We, we wouldn't issue, we wouldn't allow a researcher to, to learn, you know, the date of birth of, of the person that's been yes. interviewed. So th there's things like that that need to be, um, I'll, I'll take note of the time, we'll mute, it will stay on the master copy. So in 100 years time, that doesn't matter. But while, yeah. while an interview is still living, that's their own personal data. Exactly. So well, statutory obligations. Statutory obligations. I mean, yeah. we, we would be negligent if we released that. Mm. Um, so you have to listen to the interview and data protection will be the most prominent issue. So uh, things like, we, we find a lot of times as well, people might say, oh, I went overseas, I wasn't expecting to, but the guy in front of me broke his leg and got sick or, or got sick or had to drop out. Again, that's data protection. The, um, you know, the, there's, there's issues. Personal there, medical personal data. data. Yeah. Jesus. So there's, there's issues that you need to consider uh, when we listen back to it. Uh, you would also get things uh, like, uh, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, someone might say, look, um, I'm telling the story now, it's, it's, it's a weight off my shoulders, my story's recorded, but actually uh, some of the people involved are, are still living, or not even living, it's, it's you know, that, that this is an issue that I want recorded, but I want to wait for it's released. You might get someone, for example, who's still, uh, still serving, um, or... Um, 
yeah, someone who want it there for the family for the future, but aren't particularly comfortable about the idea of it yeah. being in the reading room next week. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, we, I mean, we would respect anyone's uh, right to, to put a closure period on uh, something to talk about in an interview. Um, the important things to remember that we don't. I mean, there's no. We are not lawyers or priests. There's, you know, if someone tells us something, they did that's illegal, or if if, if there's if there's a legal issue in it. Um, it, it can't you know mm. we can't absolutely say it's it's we're not going to release that and the boston college tapes are a great kind of case study for archivists as well when it comes to this kind of yeah historians. exactly know, yeah the, the information that yeah. yeah um so i mean we we will listen to i mean if someone says i want this um say personal family story talking about my family i'm happy for it to be there from future generations you know the impact of me being yeah. in the army on my children but i don't want it out for the public domain that kind of thing there's no difficulty we will mute that section it will stay in the master um and it can go out in future years but not for the time that the interviewee kind of uh, requests so there's a lot of work involved in doing up you do more detailed catalog as well so if a researcher comes into the reading room you know an interview some of the interviews cover i think the longest one longest single sitting interview you have so far is just under four hours covering a whole career um Someone isn't going to come into the research to listen to for our interview to try find a way around it. So the time codes allow people to navigate directly to whatever their interest is. So, for example, yeah. someone's looking at overseas service. They don't need to listen to the first 20 minutes about you know how I came to join the army. Um, so the catalog is really important in allowing people to navigate the interviews. Um, and once once it's been uh, checked for legislative issues or the requests of the uh, interviewee, uh, once the catalog's been done, then it could go into the reading room. Um, it's probably important to say at this stage that we're still very much in the early days. We're, we're still collecting material. So we have, there are examples of snippets from, from the project on our website to give people an idea of what it involves. Yeah. Um, there's about 50 interviews from, from the start of the project that are available in the reading room. Uh, we've, we've already had researchers come in and, and use them for various um, projects, PhD work, um, postgrad yeah. kind of stuff. Um, but it, we are still very much focused on we have a lot of stories mm. we want to capture so it's something that's going to grow yeah. um, and we will get more stuff out there in the future but for the moment our focus exactly. is capturing the, the stories and you mentioned actually about the, the, the fact that we use time-coded abstracts I know there's kind of our two broad methodologies in terms of, of oral history one is that the collectors will produce time-coded abstracts as we do and the other is that people will produce a full transcription now, our methodology for the oral history project is time-coded abstracts and that's not laziness that we don't want to transcribe the stuff but it's because and i think you can elaborate on this a bit michael the, uh, the, the, what's recorded there's more to it than just the words itself it's the emotion it's the pauses it's it's all that stuff as well so to communicate the full message that this person is communicating orally you need to engage with it hourly. So you need to be listening to it. It's not enough just to read a transcription. Mm-hmm. You'd, have, you'd have had well, a lot of experience. When, with that. Like you, when you record an interview, just to give an example of what Noel was saying there, like I've done 207 interviews. There's probably, uh, try 307 interviews. So there's probably 260, 250 to suit 260, uh, 260 individuals in yeah. there. Okay, for an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, or he should record, and I have to spend a whole day almost yeah. listening back to that and writing up these narratives and these sequences as you're saying that's time consuming mm-hmm. you know but when you're listening to them back the stuff I miss in the actual interview I hear it back over and over again when I'm listening back to it and that's when you get the emotional impact yeah. and the importance of it because you get the silences the nuances the emotion that's powerful which you miss all that in, in reading the text you know? absolutely yeah. and the other thing is as I said there's 270 odd people in, in, in this thing. This is the first time that this has been done, as you say, for the Defence Forces. And it's a living organism, and this is their voices. You know, it's powerful. And 
there's so many, so many people doing this at the moment. So all of that thing is extra time where you could be collecting more things. I have 207 interviews of a, from every rank in the defence force, from yeah. the crew to the chief of staff, a number of chief of staffs, all the way down through every theatre, every mission, anything you can think of going back to the 20s, or the independence, the, the emergency. And uh, as I said, there's 270, 300, 
the elected representatives and by public representatives and, and, and civil, civil servants as well. But I think with state records as, as evidence, they're, they're one strand of evidence. But when you have those complemented um, by oral history as well, it's, it's kind of like if you're navigating and you take several points to triangulate your position, the more sources you have, the better. And I think that's really a benefit of the oral history project. So, I mean, uh, contemporary things that we'd have oral history interviews on, um, Jadaville is very, contem very uh, contemporary and current at the moment as well. So we'd have several interviews with, with veterans of Jadaville as well, including interviews conducted by the Independent Review, Review Group. Um, Lebanon as well in 2018, we went to Lebanon. The, we, a team from the archives spent a week in Camp 245 and we recorded interviews with people who've been involved with the Irish contingent for the past 40 years. And, and just a couple of weeks back, we went to the naval base on their 75th anniversary and we, we recorded with them. Um, so we are capturing a, a lot of the kind of the, the important stuff and get, getting new perspectives on a lot of the significant touchstones of Irish military history. Um, one of those in particular that we're going to listen to a few clips from now is the Battle of Atiri in Lebanon. Um, before we go into these clips, Michael, would you tell us a little bit about the Battle of Atiri? Okay, so the two clips you're going to listen to here are two brothers, the Jones brothers, Michael and Thomas. Uh, they, were, they played very pivotal roles in the Battle of Atiri, which occurred in South Lebanon on the 6th of, for about a week, beginning on the 6th of April 1980. The Lebanon, Irish troops had gone to Lebanon in 1978, so during those two to two and a half years, uh, the DFF, South, South Lebanese Army, were backed by the Israelis Army, uh, were basically trying to push the United Nations forces around. And at one stage, in this incident in particular, they took over an Irish uh, position. And it kind of gave the impression that they could push the Irish around as well. And if they had have done that on that particular event, uh, I would have nullified, say, the United Nations investment in, in Lebanon and the Irish investment there, okay? Yeah. So the Irish basically stood up to the South Lebanese army and to the Israelis. They stood up to them and they took back that ground after about a week of intense conflict, which culminated at the very end. And the uh, Irish soldiers um, performed very well and it basically sent a message to the, to the international community that you're not going to mess around with the Irish battalion in South Lebanon today or ever. So it was a massive turning point in the story, very early in the 40 odd years that we've been there. And it stood, it stood to the Irish battalion and to the Irish history. And that's another thing about this oral history uh, programme, so uh, it takes me, I, I'm, I'm 200, 307 interviews of about 244 of those documented. It takes a long time to do this, you know? Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that comes out is I don't think the Irish people really understand what Irish people do on their behalf when they're abroad. And one of the powerful things in the art history programme, and you'll see this from these interviews, it, it, it breaks those historical moments apart and gives you an insight yeah. from the people who took part in it. And when they're talking about it, they're actually going back there in their own minds and giving you the detail, which is tremendous. And I think in the future, it's going to really, really enhance the understanding of the Irish Defence Forces in the future. I completely agree. the last hundred years. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think there is a lack of public awareness of what exactly uh, our soldiers are involved in in overseas missions. And I don't know whether that's because Ireland doesn't traditionally have maybe a, a, a military tradition in the same way that the United Kingdom does. Um, perhaps it's through our perceptions of neutrality, whatever yeah. exactly that means. 
But um, again, that's the thing with the oral history project, as, as we'll hear from this clip. People might, historians that may be aware, people generally associated with the army may be aware of the Battle of Atiri, but this kind of stuff, what we hear now, we're going to hear now from Sergeant Michael Jones and from his, sorry, from Sergeant Thomas Jones and then from his brother, Sergeant Michael Jones. It's not the kind of thing that even gets into the, the overseas, um, the, the UN unit history or the official documents for the most part. So again, it's a great, great benefit to have it. Um, so the first, actually, Sergeant Michael Jones was awarded the Military Medal for Gallantry uh, with distinction. And I have the commendation here before uh, we started. So for displaying outstanding initiative and exceptional bravery under heavy fire on the 8th of April 1980 at the village of Atiri, South Lebanon, he voluntarily leaving his position, regardless for the safety of his own life, went to the aid of two injured comrades and while still under heavy sustained fire, assisted them over a distance of 200 metres to safety. And also, so just to say that um, there was another officer who got the military medal for gallantry there, but there was two feet, those two Irish soldiers killed in that battle, or two UN soldiers, one Irish and one Fijian. Yeah. And we have a, we've got that, that battle from different people's perspectives who were there at the time. And one in particular that I interviewed recently, Commandant Adrian Ainsworth, yeah. also got a military award. And the, the stuff he did in that battle, and these people who were there, mm. right, it's tremendous. And this is what I'm saying. The oral history is recording the good, the bad, and the ugly, the controversial, mm. the bravery, the courage, the stupidness, the silliness, and the laughter, you know? And exactly. We don't get mm -hmm. that. We don't have that insight. And this yeah. oral history is bringing that to the fore now. It is, and again, go back to what we said about accountability. I mean, there are things in the oral history project, again, stuff that hasn't been released into the public domain yet. It, it does capture the bad and the ugly as well, you know, right up to, to the highest levels. I won't go into any more detail, but it does yeah, and it's capture the some it's the very serious stuff. Yeah. Exactly. One thing, I suppose, that kind of stands out is, like, an aim and length is a small space. I, and I'm... I'm not a small man, no. you know, five foot eleven. Yeah. Um, but because of the, I don't know, was it's adrenaline or, or or something like that, the heightening of senses, um, when when you're in that situation, like even even in the ninety hatch down, just using the the the, the periscopes, I knew exactly what was going on around yeah. me. Like you're you're hearing sounds. You knew exactly where everyone was. You could hear conversations that you normally probably wouldn't would be in the background. Yeah. They all suddenly became important. Um, you know, your eyesight, your you, you were tingling. Mm. Just this, I don't know whether it's the survival instinct or what it is, or the adrenaline rush or something like that. But it's just that whole um, heightened awareness. It's euphoric. Mm. That's the only way you can describe it. And you know. The tyres came out then, and Johnny Malloy said to me, he says, they're not going to burn us out, he said, it's not. So they were up behind the wall, and they'd, they'd pour the petrol into the tyres, light it, and they'd roll it out, and it'd roll down the hill. And I used the, the coax machine gun on the, the, the 90 to knock the tyres over, and uh, knocked a good few of them. Um, so you fired a good bit of ammunition during that? I fired a lot of ammunition, yeah. Um, I always remember the, the smell burning rubber, the, the, the tyres, and even when I, I remember when I came home, I was only a day or two home, and I was going down the town, and a truck um, engaged the trailer tyres, the brakes, yeah. and the, the smell of, I had to go home. Okay, um, I think I just need to mention, I 
I think I introduced that as Michael Jones. That was, in fact, Sergeant Thomas Jones. Oh, so Thomas Jones, yeah. my mistake there. And he was talking about has it, uh, being a gunner on an AML 90 armoured car, which took part fighting in a theory yeah. during the week of the 6th and the 13th. And just to say, so that in that interview, yeah. he, uh, the reason for the, the, the tyres, the, the DFF were using the local villagers as, as a, a screen, as kind of bodyguard, you know what I mean, yeah. a shield. But they were rolling the tyres down towards the, the Irish vehicles mm. with few petrol yeah. in them, a light, so they would catch fire. The DFF, of course, were the de facto forces yeah, who were an Israeli-sponsored yeah. militia. Yeah, and he, uh, he was firing at the tyres to stop them from hitting the vehicles because it would have mm. exploded and he would have been cooked inside, basically. You know? But he, in that interview, he's talking about those things. And he's saying, you can feel the emotion of him and he's worried about his people outside, his own brother who's outside. Yeah. But he doesn't know where he is, you know, and there's rounds hitting that car all the time, you know, and there's paint flicking off them and cutting them, they're getting injured, you know, and all you can see is out this little slit and he's to do all yeah. this kind of thing. But like, they actually took out the half track, you know, mm-hmm. they had they had to fight as peacekeepers. Oh, absolutely, and it's not, wasn't the first time and it certainly wasn't the last either. Um, well, look, that was Sergeant Thomas Jones, so apologies for the, the, the mix up there, but we're now going to listen to. Uh, the clip of Sergeant Michael Jones, his brother, who was awarded the Military Medal for Gallantry um, for his actions at Atiri. I was up, I was up and out, and what do you call it, came along, um, Tony Bracken, and there was no words spoken or anything. So who, who was Tony Bracken and where was he? Tony now? Bracken, Lieutenant Tony Bracken. Yeah, who got an award for this battle, too. Yeah. For, for the same incident. Yeah. Uh, what do you call it? And he came up, and th- there was no word spoken around like that. And the, the two of us just walked out the road, and as we were going out the road, they were bing, bing, bing. So the two, you and Tony Bracken, walked towards where the two lads were injured. Yeah. Right? Well, we kind of, you yeah. know, crowd, you know, kind of, yeah, try to make ourselves as small as possible. But you were under fire. They were still banging away. Yeah, yeah. And what do you call it? Uh, when we got out to the, when we got out close to the jeep, um. Tony, I think Tony shouted, is there anyone there, is there anyone there? And Johnny Mitten lifted up his leg and he says, look, he says, look at me leg, look at me leg. <laughs> so we went over anyways and we were, what do you call it, uh, we, we got out our field dressings and Tony was, was what do you call it, binding up uh, Jerry's leg and the whole lot. And he says, there's another fella in the back. And then there wasn't a word from the back of the Land Rover. So we looked at each other and of course it was my job. Like he was looking after it. Yeah. He was looking after Jerry Mitten's leg, so I had to go around and have a look. And I wasn't, I wasn't. Uh, there was, no, there was no noise whatsoever coming from this Land Rover. Um, so I was dreading looking around to see what was, you know. Yeah. So I looked in at him. <laughs> what do you call it? Young McCarty was there. Have they stopped? He says. Have they stopped? They hit us, you know. They hit us. The bullets were coming in the front. I think Jerry's. Uh, he says. I think Jerry is. Uh, is wounded, is hit. I know Jerry's all right now. Um, Lieutenant Bracken there is, is taking care of him. How are you? Oh, he says, it's just me ankle. He says, I've done me ankle in. I says, right, come on, let's go. So I got him out of the back of it. And what do you call it? Um, uh, um, Lieutenant Bracken, he had Jerry Mitten up. Uh, he was bandaged up and he had him up on his feet. And what do you call it? They were hobbling. He, he could only hobble very slowly. And what do you call it? I was carrying. Um, I, was, I, I, was, I was carrying what do you call it? Uh, young McCormack. 
halfway in, I said, they're going to be out there too. Too long, is, they're going to be out there too long. So I says, does your ankle hurt all that much? And he says, oh yeah, it's killing me. I says, right, fireman's lift. Oh, the roars. <laughs> <laughs> so I got him up into a fireman's lift and got him in. And as soon as I got in, the, the medics came running up and, and uh, Larry, the, the CO came running up. And he says, yeah, he's... I says, no, leave him alone. I says to me, leave him alone. Next guy, next guy, look after the next guy. And uh, we went out then and what do you call it? Helped in Jerry and the medics looked after him. And, yeah. and that was it. Uh, it was it was a small, a small little incident. In a week of incidents, that what do you call it? That uh, um, didn't seem very significant. So tremendous bravery and tremendous modesty as well. I think in one. Yeah, and modesty is correct yeah. there because uh, if I remember correctly, the Jerry Mitten Dutch. It's either, a, it's either a GPMG or a 0.5 round crossed that on ground, went under the bonnet of the car, ripped the engine and mm. into him and, and smashed his leg. And those two guys had to cross on that open, open ground under heavy fire to get them. And while they were there having those conversations with those injured guys, there was bullets bouncing everywhere and they crossed back with them, you know. And as he said, it's one little incident. You know, so that's even a powerful thing to say, like, you know. Again, I mean, the, the insight into people and their, their personality and their feelings about things is, it's amazing. And maybe actually we're, we're going to talk about maybe the, the contemporary stuff that we've been capturing as well. Um, the, the project, it's not just historical stuff that we've been, been capturing either. I mean, the, the, the last while we've been very, I think, proactive and that's been led by you, Noel, and you, Michael, as well. It's been very proactive in capturing stuff as it happens and immediately after it happens. So the two... Um, two contemporary things that I think we'll talk about are um, Operation Pontus in the Mediterranean, which the Naval Service were engaged in, and COVID as well. Um, Operation Pontus. Um, first of all, we, we have a clip here from Lieutenant Commander Dermot O'Donovan. He was the operations officer on the Ellie Samuel Beckett in 2016 when it was deployed to the Mediterranean as part of Operation Pontus. And this was the EU's humanitarian response to the migrant crisis at sea. And he requires, he, he describes his first rescue here um, that he was involved in. Um, it's very, before we start again, it's, it's very emotional and powerful stuff, isn't it, Noel? It's, when you're listening to it. Yeah, it's, all the time. there's probably a bit of a, a contrast to be drawn between the last clip and the next one that's coming up because we were, you know, Michael interviewed a guy who got the MMG for an action 40 years ago and he's, yeah. he's been interviewed kind of at a distance of 40 years. He's home and he's safe and he's warm and dry and whatever else. And and you can hear the humour in his voice and like mm. his, his recollection of it. It was it by no means kind of um negates the, the, the value or the bravery of what he was doing, but it's it's been told at a distance and he's had plenty of time to think about it in, in, in since. Um the next clip is is relating to uh, Operation Pontus and uh, twenty sixteen being recorded five years later. It he's obviously you, you would obviously have some time to process, but I think possibly the, the rawness there's more there's more kind of this is still immediate. This is something that's still very much present in in people's heads and, and minds and memories, and um, and I mean the the, the interviewee in, in this case is is um, is, is a very kind of um, uh, restrained and 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 considered. Everything you can mm -hmm. hear, everything is very considered. And said, but it, it is something that is far more yeah. recent, and that's something that kind of it's it's interesting to get to to more recent. I mean, we started the Royal Ish project. The original plan was we so many veterans were saying we want to get to these as quickly as possible. And we would always prioritise, you know, if someone says that they served during the emergency, we would try yeah. to get to you tomorrow if we can. Um, there is a, a you know, we, we try and get as many veterans as possible. But it's only in the last couple of years we're kind of going, well, actually, like, 
while we're busy looking back at history, history's happening around us. We were so many things in the last few years. Like Operation Pontus was, yeah. was the Naval Service first mission kind of overseas, um, first kind of operational kind of. Um, uh, I mean, there's a medal awarded for. I mean, I think it's the first yeah. uh, medal that the Naval Service kind of uh, are. Um, and then the more more recently, COVID again. Like I said, I mean, we're busy looking at the past and, and capturing history, and mm. meanwhile, all this stuff is 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 happening. You know, mm. in the present time as well so th- that's the initiative kind of the, the more recent yeah. projects and we, we mentioned that a lot, you know there's a lot of emotion and, and, and things like that and even trauma captured mm. in these recordings and we also mentioned how not everything that goes on overseas is kind of makes it into the public domain or into public knowledge or into the public consciousness not not out of anything deliberate but I think just out of I suppose just the way Irish society works for in several ways I think but um, in terms of Pontus itself, because this was so, you know, this was this was this was about saving people's lives up close and personal, and it was very very gritty and very real for people. From listening to these interviews, have you found that there is um, there was a, a, it was just a, a tremendous, almost visceral quality to the, the recollections of people and what exactly happened, like how serious Pontus was. I, I think one of the strengths that we can get anything out of even this part of the podcast or from recording Pontus is how serious a mission Pontus was and how potentially traumatic for the, the people involved as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of people are aware of, of Operation Pontus. Maybe it, it kind of, it was in the headlines in the last few years. Even even already, mm. it's starting to fade. I, can't, I mean, I work in with, with the Defence Forces and you kind of go, oh yeah, the Naval Service went to the Mediterranean. Oh, I'm very proud of them. It's great. They did loads of stuff. Yeah. Then you listen to someone say, what they did, like pulling people out of the water, the war, like yeah. it, it's something that kind of makes you. You read a report and you see statistics, and you kind of go, oh, "That sounds great." Oh yeah, and then you go about your day. You stop for a second and listen to someone say, you know, the, the clip that you're gonna they hear in a few minutes. Um, he's talking about um chest compressions and uh, being done on somebody that's been pulled from the water. As he's recalling the story, he's actually hitting his own hand. You can yeah. hear him hearing doing the chest compressions, and that's the kind of thing that makes you kind of think hang on stop what was he doing there like this is you mm. don't get that in a report he's um, reliving it yeah isn't he? it's yeah it's, and again you don't get that in the transcription either you don't no, get the sound it, of him recalling him giving the the chest compressions and the breaths it's yeah i, I suppose mm. it, like I, I wouldn't call it a hook but in terms of you know you kind of like i said you have this kind of glance of knowledge of, of what pontus was and then you move on yeah. to the next thing you kind of you stop for a second and go what what exactly were, the, are, were irish sailors doing in the mediterranean four or five years ago exactly it's incredible yeah. um mm. I think there was even a, a mention one of them of, of dealing with, of treating women suffering serious chemical burns from sitting below deck. Yeah, so we have, we have a number of people yeah. talking about their, their, their service in, in the Mediterranean because that happened over a few years. Yeah. But even in this individual talks about it in the interview, there was, the, the bar, the, these boats or barges that the people were on were overpacked with women and children and men. The men would be on top and the women would be in the bottom, Yeah. Okay. where the fuel was. And in some cases, even he describes it, they were very crudely made. So it was bolts and nails sticking up out of the ribs at the bottom. And the women had to sit on that, it was peeling their skin. And the fuel and the sewage, their body waste was there. And when they got them onto the becket, yeah, the skin was peeling off, and they had to treat them for this, you know, because in a way the women were seen as a lesser, lesser person than the men, you know. So they, after a while, were learning as they yeah. were going along and saying, "We're going to go and get the women and children first. Yeah, that was our priority. And by the way, as I said, we got these stories. The naval service history, we've ha- we have it from a number of individuals, but this is their first time overseas as a purely naval service mission. Yeah. 
Okay, and that's a tremendous thing for them. And those that took part mm. in that are very proud. They should be. And yeah. there should be more enhanced uh, examination of this in society, you know, because these are Irish citizens that were doing this on behalf of the Irish public. Absolutely, and, yeah. And Irish foreign policy. And this is just a prime mm. example. And this guy, as Noel is tapping his hand, he's actually gone back yeah. there. And there's emotion in it, it's the emotional nuance that you miss in a text. And he mentions the, the documentary made a few years back, The Crossing which again was very powerful, but I think even the oral history we've captured, mm. it's even more real and raw and, and visceral even, mm. I think. Yeah. Um, let's have a listen to uh, Lieutenant Commander Jeremy O'Donovan um, recalling uh, part of his time involved with Operation Pontus. Ended up doing as an ops officer, so in the boat with a crew, two, uh, two boats, yeah. two crews, seven guys. Um, into very intense stuff um, where it's actually in the documentary in the cross and you see our first rescue and I always thought that they would cut stuff out they didn't yeah they left it all in uh, went over to a boat to rescue I think it was 126 on board we were wearing cameras so I got to check the footage afterwards um, and the boat the side of it collapses and we checked I remember looking at it afterwards they, they claim, people claim, well, they cut it open. It actually split the entire seam, we found split, just with the people agitated inside in the boat. Yeah. Uh, and none of them went into the water. And we started rescuing people, started hauling them out. And uh, I remember trying to get hold of one woman. I didn't know it was a woman. But their hair was short, you know, the short kind of curly yeah. African hair. Couldn't grab hold of her. Managed to get hold of her head, trying to drag her drag her in and then as 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 I try, as she comes up out Ian Trimble is there with me and we drag her out her clothes kind of peel off her and she sees it's a woman and she's pregnant she's like nine months pregnant she's a huge big bump got her up on the deck Dave O'Leary the diver had gone into the water which you never do you're not supposed to do yeah. that's and you hear it in his voice when he talks on the tape you can hear him debating with himself and eventually he says he, he says something like I'm going to go I'm going to go and he wasn't telling me, yeah. he wasn't asking my permission as the officer. Yeah. He, w he, was, he was telling me, I'm going. And he went in. He managed to grab her and a kid, brought them out. So we ended up, we're, still, we're dragging in people left and right. And these two women, pregnant, end up on the deck. And the boat isn't that big, like that, head to head, to head like that. And he is, Dave O'Leary's on one side, doing chest compressions on this woman, who is pregnant, yeah. this side. Ian Trimble is doing chest compressions on this one, this side. And I'm in the middle, going two breaths up, yeah. over here, two breaths up, over here, two breaths up, over here, yeah. two breaths up. Wow. That's not something you get trained to do. So, very powerful stuff there, um, illustrating what we were, we're talking about. Um, we have another clip to play from Lieutenant, Lieutenant Commander O'Donovan in a bit, but um, just kind of a, in a segue into something, um, another part of this project, you might have noticed in the background, if, if you're listening closely, you could hear aircraft taking off because you're recording this out in, in Baldonald. Exactly, it really contextualizes it. And one thing that we're very conscious of in the oral history project is that it's not just military history, it's, it's social, isn't it? It's 
yeah, it's, it's, it's more than that. I mean, we we the interviews are conducted as a kind of a, a life story for the person. Yeah. So the idea behind that is that they start talking about early memories or, or, or childhood or how they grew up. And the aim is then that it becomes a conversation that you're not trying to remember a list of questions. You're not trying to make sure I don't miss anything. You're just chatting to the person about their life. You start early on, work up to how they come to join the Defence Forces or have some connection with the Defence Forces. And then you work through everything that way. So by doing that as well, you end up getting so, a, a tremendous amount of, of um, social history as well. I mean, one of yeah. the things I've noticed about the Defence Forces is, I mean... In some cases, you can nearly say it's a family business. The amount of people kind of go, oh, yeah. I grew up in the career, or like I grew up watching my dad or my uncle in uniform. And you get all these, um, you get a really broad sense of, of kind of life um, generally. Um, yeah. you know. And then as well, I mean, people are talking about, uh, we have interviews, for example, with um, Erica Violet, who are talking about, oh yeah, I was you know, out buying the goods to, you know, to make up our barbecue for our Saturday evening, and I got a call to go into work. Like, it's 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 the context for the story they're telling about the defense yeah. forces, but you pick up everything else that goes on in, in people's eyes as well. It's um, well, it humanizes it, doesn't it? It puts it in context. It, it actually it makes me think of. Do you remember when we were in we were in Lebanon in twenty eighteen, and um, we were in the middle of an interview. I think it was you. You and I were doing the interview together, Noel, and there was a knock on the door, and it was a chap Basile who I knew from my last mission, and you can hear him knocking on the door and coming in, and hey, Captain Daniel, you know, and it's. <laughs> You know, I, I know maybe if, if people are being very straight-laced about it and they go, that's not, you know, professional for, for a recording, but it humanises it, it puts it in context, you know, yeah. it was, we're not just sitting in a room floating in a void, I mean, there's life going on yeah. all around us, you know, and I, I, I kind of like, so that's, I think yeah. even, even the fact that sometimes you can hear faintly in the background of your recordings, Michael, you might hear an aircraft taking off or landing, or maybe if people were listening to this at the start, the, uh, the 12 o'clock alarm went off. Mm. You know, it kind of contextualizes it. A hundred years from now, people will yeah. listen to this and they'll hear the kind of this. Uh, I kind of like that, that the, the sounds of yeah. life going on in the background you there can, are going you can on as well. Protect so much from the sound pollution, but uh, I think we've recorded somewhere in the early days of a mouse jumping on a trap in the in the <laughs> office and frightening the behaviors out of me. Like you know, for you, Michael has a great story as well. But uh, he had done an interview that we had sh- scheduled from here in Portobello in uh, uh, Barracks in oh, the Portobello yeah. room in the officers' mess. And uh, that was with Kevin McDonald, uh, probably 2018 or 19, and we did it in the what's the name of that room? Part of the room, so we had the room set up on our interview. And next of all, a uh, recruit platoon runs by, they stop outside the window, the window's closed, and they start doing press ups. <laughs> and they're getting grilled out by the instructors. <laughs> this is on the thing, you know, go, how do we sort this out? You know, you can't well, go and tell the sergeant, you just stop screaming at that. <laughs> But that's, I mean, again, the, the benefit of the catalogue is that we can explain what that is. Yeah. I mean, it gives a bit of context and background and we can kind of say, look, don't worry about that. That's just a recruitment thing yeah. training yeah. in the background. And that's probably something you would notice the difference between, for example, the Bureau of Military History. Um, do you know, as, as technology improves, as, as this becomes something that, that yeah. can quite easily be done, you're not as concerned. The, the things sound more, I think people kind of, not that they share more, but people are happier if, if, if you kind of forget the recording equipment around you and you still yeah. having a conversation, um, you get like a, a proper kind of account of what's going on and their own comfortable mm. sense of, yeah. of how they put it together. Whereas the, the, the earlier clips for the Bureau, it's been recorded onto wax cylinders. Very a lot formal, of them you can yeah. tell they're reading from prepared statements yeah. and there's a kind of a, we have to get this right feeling about yeah. it. Um, so, you, I mean, it's interesting even in terms of over the years, I mean, if someone has listened to these a hundred years time, you'll be able to see gradually how things have changed, yeah. you know, from, from 50s up to present day in, in how we go about capturing material. Yeah, and how professional exactly. we're getting at it. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. that's the thing, we don't, it's not floating around in space. We'll say yeah. where we are, who we're with, the time, the year, the location, exactly. and who the person is, and 
and yeah. you get how long the interview takes. But that, what Noel was saying there about, it's it's the human experience. So the interviews that we'll deal with is a, it's a career, but it's a life experience. But in that, we'll slow it down for certain stories. So you'll do your research before that. Yeah. You know, will that person serve between this time? And I know he was involved in such and such a thing. Yeah. I want to get that story. So it's set within a longer narrative. Yeah. You know, and, f- and things come out of that story. You know, like, so we were talking, we just did Dermot O'Donovan there. We were down the naval base. We have lots of people talking about the naval service. All the stuff they've been doing over the last 75 years, out in operations on the North Atlantic, on the sea, you know, lots of stuff. Uh, fisheries interdiction and all that kind of stuff. But there's t- things that come out of that, like Willie Bryant and uh, Rory DeBarra. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who we know... We all know Paris because we met them. They were on Operation Pontus and told their stories. And Rurio de Barra is a writer and he's a poet. And he's actually writing about his experiences out on Pontus, you know. And that's stuff that adds to the, the narrative and the emotional impact and the story. And people will hear that. It's just another vista or another in, inside view of his life experience out there, you know. So there's lots of spin-offs to this and exactly, there will be yeah. in the future, you know. Exactly. As I said before, the more sources we have... Mm. The better as well and look it is I think even the, the, the recording thing these days it's cheaper it's easier it's ubiquitous as well especially among the kind of the current generation as well yeah. um, and even I think that you know the podcast format like this so we're not reading stuff from from a script we're sitting down we're talking we mm. might you know say the wrong word or yeah. you know mix up introduce two thing, things the wrong way and have to correct it, you know but I think it's exactly yeah. it's a format that I, th- I think people relate to and react to because it's again it humanizes it for a long time i think state records were very much this kind of formal slightly separate slightly distant kind of a thing so i think it's important for any organization especially the defense forces that can potentially have a distance between it and the rest of the i suppose civilian population the rest of the population i mean um i feel to formalize it and 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 yeah. you know chat to people and converse with them yeah. whether it's and recording them with the oral history or, or kind of getting into their cars or their living rooms through a podcast and, you know, and, a and that will come thing. into the fore again so because we're, we're collecting current affairs at the moment which will be exactly. history tomorrow on the covid thing mm-hmm. and we've got air the, the air corps search and rescue air ambulance missions going back over the last 60 years 100 years of air, air corps history but we're also mm-hmm. capturing the air ambulance service yeah. in the air corps the police that were at the forefront of that also bringing the test back and forth to Germany, all that is covered in this, you know, and that's human mm. experience. And as you said, it's the drama, it's the human drama, you exactly. know, it's the story, and that's what we all have survived on for human history. Absolutely. And actually, actually, on that, um, you mentioned COVID. Uh, the two of you are very proactive and, and and you know, kind of quick and identifying the fact that we need to start capturing people's experiences from COVID, you know, uh, as soon as possible, and we have. Um, now, we do have, again, a fairly uh, hard-hitting excerpt from Lieutenant Commander O'Donovan's interview. But before that, we have one from, one from Captain Eugene Mohan, who was working with the emergency, the Air Ambulance Service during COVID. And again, this comes back to more the kind of the social, the social context and the kind of the broader context of people's experiences. Where How did you describe it, Michael? He, he kind of records or recalls the, the retreat of human activity. Yeah. During COVID, so, so he, if you can imagine, he's been doing the air ambulance now for a few years. He's also, uh, he's a helicopter pilot. Yeah. Very intense period for those people that were doing the helicopter search and rescue and air ambulance. Sorry, the air ambulance period. So they had to learn as they were going along how to adjust because of the COVID restrictions. But they also had to go out and try and save lives and bring people to the hospital. And this clip of all of that kind of summed up for me the human experience because yeah. this slows down the whole thing. It was the retreat of human activity. 
of the of the landscape, and he's just talking about this within the whole melee of everything else he's describing in the interview. You know, and you'll hear it now. Yeah, because I, I I actually remember the first day the restrictions came in, but because I had to come into the barracks for official duty, I remember thinking how eerie it was that the roads were so empty on the drive down the M4 in. So um, he's given his reflection from the point of view of the helicopter cockpit. Yeah, he, no, no, he's actually he, travelling to he, Athlone. Oh, he's travelling to, to Athlone? To go on his few days ah, yeah, as yeah. an air ambulance pilot. So he's travelling down there and this ah, is what he's seeing. Yeah. Right, well, let's have, a, let's have a listen to it. Then uh, across country to Athlone. But the road would be literally quiet. Um, and the amount of uh, birds that used to sit on the road was phenomenal because like, it was something that you don't normally see uh, maybe very early in the morning you might see a couple of birds sitting on the road but literally the the, the roads had kind of turned in, turned into a bit of a nature reserve or something but there were so many birds on the road like and we used to always comment on it quite a bit was because uh, you actually had to slow down because there were so many of them uh, on the roads um, so lots of wildlife and lots of animals you also found that you know, even if you weren't driving anywhere and you're listening, the, it was so quiet because there was no traffic noises or anything. So it was one of the things that a lot of us used to kind of talk about at the time was, was there more boards in the sky and was there more animals around? And I don't know if it was maybe we just noticed it more. Um, there mightn't actually be more, but we, we definitely did pick up on that and everyone was the same. Yeah, so people, I mean, people listening could be saying, well, you know, this is a very serious pandemic. Why, uh, why is the military archives recording somebody's reflections on on wildlife but again it, it's the broader experience and think about it a hundred years from now as we look people, back yeah. at the 19 pandemic 18 1918 pandemic exactly we've now, yeah. we've now you haven't got many voices but we have yeah this is just part of an interview about the the covid exactly thing, you know like what was it like you know because again this was again i, I know like, from from the defense forces point of view at the start the organization was getting temporary morgues prepared and everything i mean it was very serious as well but so this is we're living through a very significant part of history now yeah. and just to have that stuff i mean that stuff's not going to appear in the official documents no. you know, that's never going to appear in, in, a, in his report or anything but you know, people can see that you know, so what happened in the country when yeah. there was a pandemic what was it like traveling down the roads and the other thing just about the COVID we start I'm, yeah, we were proactive in saying we should interview people involved in, in the Defence Forces COVID response or people affected in people the Defence Forces on the line, front line of the, yeah, the task force uh, possibly you might even argue that we probably started a bit too soon I mean we did some interviews last uh, last summer and obviously then there was a, a you know it, so these are very contemporary in some cases there are people that we will go back to next year yeah. or the year afterwards that you're getting you know, it'll be interesting even just a point in time. You know, I, I remember interviewing someone last summer and we were talking about, oh, do you remember? And the two, it ended up really being a conversation because uh, she was talking about what she was doing and I was kind of going, oh, I remember that, I was doing this, that. And it, it really turned into just a chat. But we were talking about it, it was in the past tense and this was last July or August. Yeah. September, I started working from home again. It's, you know, the, the, yeah, I mean, you, you don't really know what you're going to capture. In a couple of years' time, like I said, mm. we'll, we'll try to come back to some yeah. of these and see now there's been some time passed. Yeah. Now, what's your recollection of it? Um, yeah. And for, for Captain Mullen, one of the things that stood out for him at the time that he talks about is the impact on the roads. Do you know, I mean, he's doing incredible um, flights and everything. Um, yeah, yeah. At, at the same time, the work they're doing. It'll be interesting in a couple of years' time Yeah. what impressions does he still have all that yeah. time. That's, but that's, sorry, so that's the great thing about this. We've got the biggest collection of voices in the Defence Force. We'll come to the centenary in two months' time of the Defence Forces and the state. You know, so this stuff will be powerful for you looking back at our, our time. 
But he's on the front line, Captain Eugene Mohan. Exactly, yeah, exactly, and all yeah. the crews that are doing that traditionally search and rescue air ramblings over the last 60 years, and air corps in general, the operations. But he's on the front line of the Joint Task Force that the Defence Forces set up to fight COVID on behalf mm-hmm. of the Irish people and the state. And he goes through his interviews, they all do that, about everything they're witnessing and experiencing, you know. But the world changed. And that's just a small sample of how the world changed, you know. It is. He's driving down the road, trying to get to Athlone to fly a helicopter, probably to Galway, wherever he gets called out to do. He'd be looking at people who are in severe trauma or whatever, and he has to dodge the wildlife, which wouldn't be there if yeah. the pandemic hadn't kicked in, you know. It's not like he's dodging a deer or a stag <laughs> or a moose, you know. It's But... um. Yeah, I mean, and, and on COVID, so that what brings us on to our, our the last clip we have to play for the, the podcast. This is Lieutenant Colonel Dermot O'Donovan. Um, and it's interesting that in his interview, he reflects on how he is, um, what do you say, he's u- using skills and experience that he got in the Mediterranean Pontus in his own capital city of Dublin. So again, this is another powerful clip from uh, Lieutenant Commander O'Donovan, and it gives some really great insight into the work of the Defence Forces during the COVID pandemic. What exactly was the role? What, what did your crew do on that location? Just for someone listening to this in the future. So we set, we set up, a, we set up uh, number tents on the key wall and then people, it was through the HSE, they would uh, get for testing. Yeah. They would land in, um, check all their details and we'd actually do physically the swabbing, Okay. the testing at the time. And with some people coming in who were quite sick, it became, I think, kind of real for me the second day this woman came in and she was not much older than me I'm 45 so she was maybe early 50s okay uh, she was a carer she was working in a, a care home like with the elderly mm. and she she came in and you could see she was in distress she was very short of breath but she was still standing and the ambulance guy said they're still standing like they have blood pressure so you know yeah. you're doing okay and the next thing was she's just she kind of sat down and she got worse and she you could see her deteriorating and I just saw the ambulance guys. I looked around the, the room, and the ambulance guys suddenly, they weren't they weren't talking anymore. They had stopped. They yeah. weren't doing the usual banter stuff. Mm. They had suddenly all switched on. They had all turned towards her. I went, oh oh, they've, yeah. they're not happy. I could see straight away that they weren't happy, and they were still being very courteous with her. Oh, okay, yeah. we're just going to bring her over here, love and love. And that suddenly she had an oxygen mask on. For I know it, she was on a gurney. They had her thing. They had a, a wagon, uh, an ambulance pulled yeah. up outside. No sound on it. Lights already go, but like you didn't know it was there. It just yeah. appeared. That her in, and she was in a bad way. She literally deteriorated wow. in that twenty minutes from the time she started in the queue mm. to the time she got in for testing. She was in in a bad way. We we're talking to 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 Richard afterwards, and he went, "Yeah, as soon as they saw her, they knew that she's in a, you know she has COVID. She's yeah. in a bad way, and she had come from a care home, and immediately he had grabbed another four guys, put them into a vehicle, and then disappeared off. Said like, "Where are you working, love?" She gave the name yeah. of whatever care and they'd gone straight there testing and they said, Yeah, they're finding you know, that mm. it was into the care homes at that yeah. stage. So he was he was he was hunting the virus at that stage is what yeah. he was doing. But just to see how they went from Yeah. Ah Jesus, how are you? To bump to yeah. these professionals. That's when it that's when it became really real for me. And she was drowning basically yeah. in front of us, is how we describe it. People were saying to me, Oh, it's a flu I said, No, it's like it's like pneumonia. It's like yeah. she she literally couldn't breathe in front of us like it was it was horrible yeah and that's when i got scared as well and kind of went oh christ this is you can't see it yeah we're used to you know fighting a fire or, or t- 
taken on somebody, maybe with a weapon or something you can see in front of you, a target. Yeah. No target. Can't see it. And, and that's I think that's really what what rattled us was you you, you were dealing with an enemy you couldn't yeah. fight. Yeah. But um, say, like once we got it up and running, set up, it ran for there was I think three or four ships after us. That's right. Yeah. Um, so it was. I don't. I think the public. I think they were concerned first, then they were kind of amazed, and then they were kind of. And by the end, it was like, sure, what else would you be doing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so it was, it was, it was, in, it was something I never expected we do. It took in my own. I was using skills from the Mediterranean in my own capital city. Yeah. You know, in a first world city. I never think, thought that was going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So again. Uh, Tremendous insight into experiences that won't necessarily make their way into no. official documents. So again, Sean, I think a good clip to finish on to show the the benefit of the oral history project, what it captures, and how that complements the official state record to give more, I suppose, accountability and more create more documentary evidence of you know what the defence forces do on behalf of the people of the state. You know, and just short on that interview, um, he goes on with the fear. That he felt mm-hmm. and he knew that his crew were going to be seeing this type of thing and be yeah. fearful as well and he led by example he was the first one to get into ppa and go out and do the first test and show them we can do this you know and that's what i took in a lot of cases from people in the defense forces to do these things go out and lead by example you know i'm wearing the uniform exactly you know? and very important that we've captured it now at this stage i think um look, i think we've we've been talking for well over an hour now at this stage as well. It's been really interesting. I've thoroughly enjoyed it anyway. Um, I think we'll just finish um, on just a, a quick overview then of the Oral History Project that it is um, open to anybody who wants to talk to the project, whether they're serving military, uh, retired military, um, or even family members, family members uh, public or civil servants who've been in the Department of Defence or have had any kind of interaction, I suppose, with, with Defence. So it is open to anybody um, we do provide any kind of confidentiality that people want if they want to have uh, a closure or they want to have uh, restrictions on, on, on access or whatever into the future. That's absolutely fine. It's important to us that we capture this information. It is entirely objective. Uh, objective. We don't give any uh, direction or coercion into what people can or can't talk about. It's completely open and free to anybody who wants to come along and tell us their story um, with the only caveat being that any kind of uh, criminal activity again won't be naturally enough can't be can't just be um, ignored but besides that yeah um, anybody who wants to get in touch you can drop us a line at militaryarchives at defenseforces.ie we already have quite a there's still quite a good list of people interested in, in, in speaking isn't there Noel? yeah even just during the week I got a, a query with a, a list of half a dozen names so I mean our, our issues at the moment are more about uh, time and resources than anything absolutely, else absolutely yeah we're delighted to have anyone uh, any yeah. kind of input information or insight onto mm-hmm. military history in Ireland 20th century we would love to speak to you uh, might take us a while to schedule it but we'll get to you as quickly as we can exactly yep perfect okay well then I think it's time for us to, to wrap up the podcast I want to thank uh, Noel and Michael for joining me here at the military archives and especially to you for listening whether you're listening to us in the car or streaming us at home thanks for tuning in and we'll be back with a military archives podcast again soon and thank you so for keeping going with the project. <laughs> Thanks.